Well, welcome once again, and we're uh, continuing in our nine o'clock hour to study uh, end times prophecy. The theological uh, term for that is eschatology, of course, and uh, we've been doing this for, well, you can see now 21 weeks, but the last several weeks we've been specifically focused on the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' comprehensive teaching about His return. So we're calling this little subsection, What Jesus Said uh, About the End Times. And I thought I would begin, if you'll indulge me, by just giving a brief report. I'll probably give another report during the announcements during our worship hour, but uh, of, uh, of the Prophecy Conference I was at this weekend. We just got in at 11.30 last night, and the annual Mid-America Prophecy Conference in Tulsa, which you've heard us talk about the last several weeks, uh, took place this weekend, and man, it was wonderful. The Lord really blessed. We had some great speakers, uh, Tommy Ice, Andy Woods, Damon Duck, myself, and the uh, biggest crowd they've had in years, and I think a lot of that was, uh, first of all, it was canceled for the first and only time in 28 years last year because of all that was going on, and then secondly, also because of all that's going on in the world, people are often thinking about the end times and what's the what in the world's going on and what does this have to do with you know, the Satan's end times takeover, and so people were really uh, eager to hear what, uh, what we all had to say, and the Lord really blessed and used it, and I was honored, uh, as always, to be a small part of it. Um, I spoke twice. The first of my uh, messages there um, was on Spirit of the Antichrist, and I was able to do my best to distill down from the 18 videos, 14-hour series that we did here last fall that was recorded here uh, into one hour, but also took 15 minutes of questions and answers at the end of it. And that uh, video is already posted at the Not By Works website. Uh, so if you are interested in watching that, you can just go to notbyworks.org. And uh, it, there should be a banner on the highlight carousel right there on the homepage. I think the first spot is is highlighting that message. But if not, you can always click on videos and then all videos and scroll through there and you'll see it there. The date will be May 28th and you'll see the slide and that's the video. So I encourage you to watch that. The second video will also be posted. I spoke yesterday on Israel and God's plan of the ages and we traced um, God's grace as uh, illustrated through his relationship with his chosen nation Israel through time going all the way back, well, we started even before Israel in the garden, and then we looked at you know, Noah and then got to Abraham and the unconditional covenant with Abraham in chapter 12, and then traced it all the way through the Old Testament and ended up in Revelation and showed how God certainly has a, a future for national Israel, we know that, and, but also how his relationship with uh, what the Bible calls the apple of his eye, Israel, pictures God's grace with us as individuals. And so that one's not posted yet because I just did it yesterday and then we, uh, we hit the road and it's a 10-hour drive. And so I'll, I'll catch up on that either this afternoon or tomorrow, but you can watch for that one as well. But uh, really entering uh, the busy season for Not By Works, we'll be doing a conference in Texas next weekend, um, uh, also speaking on Spirit of the Antichrist. And then I'll be speaking at a conference that I've done before in, in Fresno the following weekend and speaking on grace there. I've uh, done an end times conference there this year. They asked me to speak on various aspects of God's grace. I'll be speaking five times at, in Fresno. So be in prayer for us that the gospel will go forth uh, clearly and, and 
accurately, of course, and that it'll be impactive, and the Lord will use it. These are uh, very uh, important times in our world. You know, a lot of a lot of things are happening, and they're happening very fast. Um, you know, I heard heard a guy uh, that I listened to. A, we listened to a lot of podcasts on our drive this weekend, and uh, heard a guy talking about the rate of change. And he said, you know, back in the 19th century, if you were, you know, uh, if you were to fall asleep, like what's that old children's story where the guy Rip falls asleep? Yeah, Rip Van Winkle or something. If you were to fall asleep for 20 years, you could wake up after 20 years and jump right back in. Not much has changed. But, you know, if you were to fall asleep, you know, even five years ago now, you know, you'd wake up and you'd be like, did anybody page me while I was gone? Or, you know, that kind of, and people, page, what's page? You know, these things are changing that fast. And so, um, so this has relevance, of course, for uh, God's plan of the ages. And that's why we've been uh, uh, diving in to this uh, in this nine o'clock hour. So how much of God's word uh, relates to unfulfilled prophecy? 16%. 16%. That's right. So a lot of 84% churches out there that teach the Word of God, but they omit the 16% that hasn't been fulfilled. And uh, we don't want to be one of those churches. We want to preach the whole counsel of God. And uh, nor do we want to uh, zero in and become obsessed only with what God's Word says about future things. And of course, we on uh, Sundays are going through the book of Hebrews with some of its teaching for the church today. And really looking forward to the message from chapter 13 uh, in the second hour today on the local church and the importance of the church. And never before has it been more important than in times like these. So we touch on a lot of different subjects. Wednesday nights at our midweek study, we talk up about uh, the gospel and clarity of the gospel and the greatness of God's salvation, some of those doctrines. But this hour is dedicated to what lies ahead, and we're focusing on what Jesus said about the end times. Uh, the book that covers this is on the back table. If you don't have one, feel free to pick one up. If you're watching by live stream or watching the video later, uh, feel free to go to notbyworks.org and click on the store, and you can pick up a copy there and use uh, coupon code WLA, and you can get a bit of a discount there. So what lies ahead, an overview of the end times. Let's uh, quickly go through in context, because I know, you know we're only thinking about this once a week, and it's kind of helpful to see where we are in the flow of thought here. But um, the Olivet Discourse is so named because it's Jesus teaching from atop the Mount of Olives in answer to the disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, they wanted to know when the kingdom would come. They had been under the impression, and we know this for a fact because Luke uh, tells us this in Luke 19, what was um, in their minds. They thought that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that final week, Passion Week, uh, on the back of a donkey, that he was coming in to inaugurate the kingdom, that he was going to rescue the nation of Israel from their latest oppressor, the Roman Empire, and uh, start the long-awaited kingdom. Of course, if he did, then there would be 0% of the Bible unfulfilled, because it would have all been fulfilled in that moment. Uh, but of course, God's plan was being worked out. And even though Jesus had hinted more and more and even directly talked about the fact that, you know, the cross has to come before the crown, suffering before exaltation, uh, he had specifically said he was going to die. Uh, and even though the Old Testament prophets 
had predicted that. You could think of Isaiah 53. Uh, you could think of uh, where he's wounded for our transgressions and so forth. You could think of Daniel 9, where it talks about the Messiah will be cut off. There's several passages that talk about it. But nevertheless, the disciples missed it. They, they still didn't understand it. They weren't connecting the dots. And so being obsessed with the kingdom, they really expected it to come at any moment, you know, within hours. So Jesus had just in Matthew 23 on uh, Monday and Tuesday of that week had uh, cursed the fig tree. He had overturned the tables of the money changers. He had had those scathing Mark's remarks for the Jewish leaders of the nation in chapter 23, where he called them all those wonderful, kind, and loving words like whitewashed tombs and vipers. <laughs> um, you know, today people uh, have created a kinder, softer, gentler God. They, they tend to focus on the grace and love aspects and forget that he's also a just and holy and righteous God. Um, but in, when the disciples saw that, and then especially when he told them that not one stone would be left upon the other, another, referring to the temple, they really began to get worried. How can the, the kingdom come? How can Jesus, our Messiah, take David's throne and rule in a literal earthly brick-and-mortar temple if that temple is destroyed? So that's when they ask the questions. They were on point number two here. What will be the sign of your coming? And then the entire rest of the Olivet Discourse, which we've been looking at Matthew's account, uh, but it's also recorded in Luke 21 and Mark 13, uh, is an answer to that question. Jesus answered that question. So he first gives in verses 4 to 14 general signs that relate to that future seven-year period that will happen just before his return, variously referred to in Scripture as the, the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, overflowing scourge, the great day of the Lord's wrath, those types of things. And we talked a lot about how those teachings of Jesus in that section correlate perfectly with the description we get in the book of Revelation of the end times in, verses, uh, in chapter 6 to 18. And I gave you a chart about that. And then in, chapter, in verse 15, he shifts into a more specific focus and he gives more detailed signs. And he says, when you see, for example, the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then you know it's really getting close, and you should head for the hills and be ready, it's coming, three and a half years from now. And, uh, and so verses 15 to 26 give more specific signs. Uh, and then in verses 27 to 31, he describes what it will be like actually at his coming when he returns, and he describes the cosmic signs and the sign in the heavens and so forth, and then he comes back, and verse 31 is a very key verse because it's in verse 31 that he describes how he will supernaturally regather believing Israel into the land to begin the kingdom in fulfillment of many, many Old Testament passages, and I talked about a lot of these in my message yesterday in Tulsa, uh, relating to the nation of Israel and their coming kingdom. Uh, but passages like Deuteronomy 30, verse 13, or, or, or verse 3, rather, and uh, Isaiah 27 and verse 13. So we know that Israel has to believe the gospel individually, like anybody. Nobody can be saved without faith, and Israel is no exception. So before nationally they can be delivered into their long-awaited kingdom, they must first individually believe the gospel. 
And then when they believe the gospel, then having believed, they can call on the name of the Lord as Joel 2.32 describes and as Paul quotes in Romans 10. And then instead of crying, crucify him, crucify him, like they did at his first advent, next time they will cry in fulfillment of Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And thus will commence the kingdom. So by the time you get to verse 31, Jesus has answered their question in great detail and in no uncertain terms. And then the rest of the Olivet Discourse is practical applications of that. And I was with some you know, top world-class Bible prophecy experts, such as Dr. Tommy Ice, who, uh, along with Tim LaHaye, founded the Pre-Trib Research Group and was very influential in the launching of the Left Behind series with Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And uh, they host a big conference every year in December, which I've had the chance to speak at a couple of times and been invited back again this December. And uh, so I always love listening to these guys speak because they um, have uh, much, well, first of all, they're much, much older, and you can tell them I said that. So they have a lot broader background to draw from, and they walked and talked and worked with a lot of the great uh, men. A lot of these guys grew up and cut their teeth on people like Hal Lindsey in the 70s, you know, and, uh, and they know him very well. And so when you get to passages like the fig tree, Bible prophecy experts have 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 been all over the map trying to really interpret that and, and frankly missed the point, as we, myself and other colleagues at this conference have pointed out. But basically when Jesus shifts gears in verse 32 to talk about the fig tree, it's just an analogy. It's not a prophecy. There's nothing in the text that indicates it's a prophecy. It's not predictive. It's explanatory. And all he's saying is, so, having now told you these signs of my coming, when you, in the same way that when you see a tree begin to spring forth its green leaves, you know summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these signs that I've just described to you, you'll know that my coming is near. Very simple analogy. And yet, you know, people have tried to relate that and make it into a prophecy, and they've tried to say that when Israel became a nation on May 15, 1948, modern state of Israel, uh, that that was the fig tree sprouting, which is not true. There's nothing in the text that indicates that. Uh, while that event was prophetically significant, in and of itself, it did not fulfill a prophecy for two reasons. Number one, Israel was not regathered back into their homeland in belief. You, you do understand that, right? The national leaders of Israel have not believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. I mean, maybe some of them have, but certainly not Bibi Netanyahu. He's not in, in the least sense a believer. And, uh, and nor have most of the, the official leaders of the nation. That's not to say that there are not believers in Israel today, Jewish believers. There are. People have done missionary work over there, and many Jews have come to faith. But the nation, the official nation, has not responded in faith and cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That will not happen until Christ comes back. And that regathering will not be a matter of scattered Jews abroad in the world packing up their suitcases, getting into their cars, and making their way back to their ancient homeland. The regathering prophetically that the Bible talks about will be a supernatural regathering. They will be literally instantly at the return of Christ picked up from where they are and regathered into the land as the Old Testament and the New Testament describe it. So the fig tree is not referring to the beginning of 
Israel becoming a nation again. And yet, as I talked about at the conference yesterday, it absolutely is prophetically significant. Why would we say, why would that event when Israel is reborn as a nation, modern Israel, why would that get our attention as Bible prophecy students? And, uh, and, and why would I say that it's significant? Can anybody connect those dots for us? So let me, let me lead you down the path a little longer, a little more. What do we know happens after the rapture during that final seven-year period that Jesus has just been teaching about? Uh, what are some of the events that happen? Do, do any of them have anything to do with, say, for example, the nation of Israel? Yeah, you've got a covenant made between the Antichrist and Israel. You've got a temple that is rebuilt so that the Antichrist can go in and you know, blaspheme God and set himself up as God and rule as God from the temple at the midway point. In fact, the whole seven years is the completion of God's 490-year prophecy in Daniel, which was made with Israel for his people and his holy city, the text tells us in Daniel. And that's why Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Israel. So, of course, for the end times prophecies to be fulfilled, the way the Bible describes them, there has to be an Israel on the map. So, when Israel is uh, established again and given a, a homeland in May 15, 1948, following World War II, everybody goes, ah, we must be getting close, you know, we, uh, the stage is being set, right? It wasn't the fulfillment of prophecy, the next prophecy to be fulfilled, according to Scripture, the, the, the beginning of the end, the beginning of that 16% is the rapture, and it's imminent. Nothing has to happen before the rapture. And we've talked about the doctrine of imminency and how the Bible plainly teaches that. But that doesn't mean that we might not witness the stage being set, so it's it's preparation for fulfillment, not fulfillment. So yes, 1948 was a very significant uh, moment, and we uh, expect as time goes on, we see several other things happening, the global system being set up. Uh, all of the systems are in place to fulfill the Antichrist's satanic, uh, tyrannical regime. Uh, people ask me all the time, is the the vaccine passport and the mRNA technology, is that the mark of the beast? And I answer it the same way every time, that that's not the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast won't come into practice until after the rapture, but it could very easily be the technology that the, mark, that, that the Antichrist uses for, as the mark of the beast. In fact, I think it almost certainly will be because, there, I mean, it fits the bill. There's nothing else that for global tracking, to be able to buy and sell, to be able to shop or go places or do anything, you got to have this mark, and that technology uh, certainly uh, seems to fit the bill. So, uh, so everything is in place, and and but that's not doesn't mean it's the fulfillment. So what Jesus is talking about here is his second coming, not the rapture. The rapture is not found in the Olivet Discourse anywhere. The rapture wasn't revealed until the very next day in the upper room when Jesus began to hint at it with his disciples. And then later, uh, the first two letters that Paul wrote, I find this very significant chronologically now, were Galatians in which he deals with a doctrinal issue related to the gospel. 
And the second letter was 1 Thessalonians in 51 AD in which he reveals the rapture and says, okay, here's what's going to happen. First time we ever, God ever revealed it to mankind through the written word. So uh, I don't, maybe that's why I've always, uh, you know, having grown up in a Christian home and grown up being influenced by a, a father and a grandfather, a grandfather who was a preacher and interested in this stuff, maybe that's why those two topics have always been of greatest interest to me, the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel and the end times on the rapture. So, so the rapture is not what he's talking about here, but he's talking about signs that will precede his second coming. And then having given those signs, he says, look, when you see those signs, you know my return is near. In fact, another passage, verse 34, that's given people trouble and really is, it shouldn't. He says, the generation that sees all these signs will be the generation that sees my return. So when he uses the phrase, this generation, you've got to look at the antecedent of that pronoun. What generation is he talking about? And in Matthew 24, 34, this generation is the generation about whom he's speaking not the generation to whom he's speaking. So he's saying the generation that sees all these signs will know that my return is near. And then he gets into uh, the analogy of Noah and the flood. We talked a lot about that, uh, how at the return, uh, at the judgment in Noah's day, the ones that were swept away and taken off the earth were swept away in judgment. Luke's account of, a, of the same analogy makes that very clear. When he says the flood came and destroyed them, Matthew's account says the flood came and took them away. Some people have tried to suggest that he's talking about the rapture there because you know one is taken and the other left, but that's not the context. In the context, the one taken is taken away in judgment and destroyed. The Bible is very clear about that. And the same thing was true in Noah's day. Who was left behind on the earth? Not the unbelievers, but the believers, the eight righteous people. The ones taken off the earth were taken away in judgment. And so he begins after the parable of the fig tree with a series of watchfulness or readiness uh, illustrations and analogies and parables in which he's challenging those people that will be alive in that day not to be deceived. Don't take the mark of the beast. Be not deceived. He says that several times in the Olivet Discourse. And be ready. And then uh, last week... Uh, we looked at the analogy of the householder, and uh, we'll pick up w with that, where he says, Know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. And again, this watchfulness idea, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you uh, do not expect. And then we looked at the faithful and evil servants, when uh, uh, he, he says, uh, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, finds him so doing. But he says, unfortunately, some servants are going to think, my master is delayed in his coming. And I pointed out that Jesus' emphasis here seems to be on the fact that some people who are alive at the second coming of Christ during that seven-year period will make the dreadful mistake of assuming uh, that his return, that they've got plenty of time. And, and what's going to happen is they're going to be caught off guard because his return occurs sooner than they thought. And that's what he's describing uh, here. And so then we move into chapter 25 today where he makes just the opposite point. Again, this is all still part of his watchfulness section. Remember I said 
he, he, he starts with a parable, gives three analogies, and ends with a parable. And this is the, the bookend here, is the parable of the ten virgins. And all five of those, the parable, the three analogies, and the final parable, are echoing one main exhortation, which is be ready, be alert, don't miss it. And uh, many Jews will, once again, just like they did at the first advent, take the mark of the beast. They didn't do that the first advent, but they'll reject Christ. And in the case of the second coming, they will take the mark and, and not, uh, not receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. So what this parable is teaching, in contrast to the analogy of the faithful and evil servants, is that for some people alive at the time of his return, his return will occur later than they thought. Remember what happened with the uh, uh, parable here? The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now again, a, a fundamental rule of interpreting parables. Uh, if you take my Bible study methods uh, class, which we offer at notbyworks.org, you'll learn 24 rules for interpreting scripture, but one of which is when dealing with parables, always limit the understanding to the main point. Unless the text itself defines every jot and tittle and detail, we are completely speculating by trying to get down into the weeds and, and give everything in the parable some type of symbolic, spiritualized meaning. If Jesus doesn't do that, we don't do that. And a lot of people have really written entire book-length treatments of the, the parable of the ten virgins, and I can interpret the parable of the ten virgins in two words. Be ready. That's all he's saying. We don't know. He's not trying to suggest here that the oil means this and the lamps mean that and the darkness means this and so forth. He's a parable in Scripture, by the way. It's a compound word in Greek, para, balo. Balo means to throw. Para means beside. So a parabolo is to take a spiritual truth and throw it beside an everyday life experience so that you can understand it better. And that's what Jesus does. He takes cultural things and uses them as an illustration of a point. And the illustration that he's taking here is from a typical Jewish wedding. And those wedding feasts would take place at night. And, uh, and they would, when the time, when the appointed time came, you know, they would come and they would, you know, get the, the uh, uh, bride and, and say, time has come, let's go meet the bridegroom. And then they would commence with the ceremony. And people in the Jewish culture knew this. They understood it. So he was just taking a common everyday occurrence uh, as an illustration, but he, in this particular illustration, there were five virgins that were ready and five that were not. So he calls five of them wise and five of them foolish. Notice what he says, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. In other words, they were so excited about his return they just took, grabbed their lamp and had a little oil in it. They said, oh, I mean, he's going to be, the bridegroom's going to be coming any second. Now, surely this will get to us. And then you can just imagine how nervous they got as they saw that oil get lower and lower and lower in the ramp, lamp. And then the light begins to fizzle out, and he still hadn't come, right? And then, uh, then of course, what do they do? They say, oh, help us, you know, you know, can we have some of your oil? And the, uh, the uh, other you know, the, the wise bridegrooms were clearly capitalists and not socialists and said, no, no, go get them, go get it for yourself. No, we were prepared. We got our oil. You do the same. We're not going to give you a handout. Um, and so this is what he's, this is the point that he's making is that 
my return might be later than you thought. So you just need to be ready. Don't put it off. Do what's necessary today, which is to believe that I am who I say I am, that I'm the only hope for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and then you'll be ready. And then you'll be one of the ones at my return who's gathered supernaturally as you sing and cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord, and we begin the kingdom together. So uh, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Uh, certainly easy to make some spiritual applications from a lot of these things, but it would be just that application. We, I don't know that Jesus intended for us to think that you know people are asleep at the wheel, but they, they are today. And they will be in that future seven-year period. So then, of course, at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the watch, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, there it is, that's the key, that's the point that he's making here, went, out to, went into the wedding, and the door was shut. One of the saddest phrases in Scripture. And you see this repeated in different contexts from the very beginning of Christ's ministry, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's going to say to some, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, and these Jews weren't ready. And uh, afterward, the other virgins, the foolish ones, came and said, Lord, Lord. Again, where have we seen that before? Matthew 7. But he said, I do not know you. And then here Jesus sort of summarizes the parable that he just said. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So they know roughly when he's coming based on the Old Testament prophets, but Remember, the tribulation period, which is exactly seven years, seven years on a Jewish calendar, which is 360 days, so it's actually going to be seven, sh shorter than seven years that we're used to. So five days shorter per year, seven, so 35, about a month shorter. So um, anybody watching this video, and I know this is in the context of the nation of Israel being ready for their kingdom, but... For anybody left behind at the rapture, see, at the rapture, it's just the opposite. At the rapture, it's the saved that are rescued to meet the Lord in the air before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, and it's the unbelievers that are left behind. So if you're watching this video after the rapture, uh, and you think, well, I've got seven years, you need to adjust your calendar by at least one month, because <laughs> if you decide, I'm going to just wait till the last week, and then I'm going to believe in Jesus, well, you're going to be too late, right? Because it's seven, according to Daniel and Revelation, it's seven Jewish calendar years. Um, but anyway, uh, you know these the, when when that they should they ought to be able, you would think, because if they can do math, they ought to be able to figure out well seven years. But the fact of the matter is that the clock starts ticking on that final seven-year period with the signing of the peace treaty, Daniel nine twenty-seven. And people won't necessarily know precisely when that happened, will they? Right? Um, we, we could use an illustration in our current day of whenever official treaties or you know, documents and agreements with other countries 
are signed and put in effect, we often have a big ceremonial signing, right, where you've got the president and he's shrouded by all of the congressmen and senators and other key people that maybe were that that bill or whatever it is is important to him. And he'll sign with multiple pens because everyone gets a little keepsake pen and all that. But what you don't realize is that in all likelihood, the official document that goes in the official U.S. archives was probably signed back somewhere else and put sealed up and put in everything was just for show, right? You know, when I used to do a lot of weddings, I don't do very many weddings uh, anymore. Uh, since we started Not By Works, I've been involved in pastoral work off and on through the years since then, but I still just, just I never have done, done a lot of them. But early on in my ministry, did a lot of weddings and funerals. And my practice at weddings was, you know, the, the bride and groom would produce the uh, uh, license, the, the official county document that you had to have signed and submit to the county clerk. And at the rehearsal, typically if it was a Saturday wedding, that would be Friday night, I would have the bride and groom sign it. And then there, I usually use the best man and maid of honor as the witnesses. They'd sign it. And I'd, I'd you know, put it in the envelope, seal it, put the stamp on it. And then I'd wait till after the wedding on Saturday. And on my way home from the wedding, I'd go buy a mailbox and drop it in the mailbox. Now, of course, I didn't tell the bride and groom Friday night that they were already officially married because I just didn't, didn't want to complicate things. And, you know, maybe the groom would be a little too eager. I just, I just didn't want to go there. Um, but, but I also learned not to drop it in the box on Friday night because there have been weddings where at the 11th hour, someone's left standing at the altar. And so I didn't want to have to call up the county clerk and say, you know that license I signed and sent in, uh, could you tear it up? You know, that would create a nightmare. But so, so the ceremony, the illustration is the ceremony is when people, okay, they're now married, you may kiss the bride. I now present to you Mr. and Mrs. Joe Johnson or whatever. But the thing that makes it legal had already happened. It was so. My point is, we don't know when we know biblically that when the quill or the pen signs that document, according to Daniel nine twenty seven, the clock starts ticking. But people won't know exactly when that is. That's why you don't know the day or the hour necessarily, right? Um, so, furthermore, it's the point Jesus is making here is not to you know, set your clocks like an alarm and at the 11th hour, you know, jump into the game by trusting in Jesus. He's trying to say, trust me now, <laughs> right? Trust me now. Don't wait. You wanted to know when my return's going to be? Let me describe it for you. The way the Old Testament prophets did, the way the book of Revelation would later under the inspiration of the Spirit when John wrote that. Uh, but uh, this is what to watch for. But in the meantime, don't wait. Be ready. So any questions, we'll kind of take some questions now before we uh, we'll save the peril of the talents for the next session because that's a, a, an important one that I want to talk about. Um, and then we've got the sheep and the goats judgment. So we'll do both of those next week. But I'll just open the floor for questions and comments in our last 10 minutes here today. Yes. JB, in the tribulation at the three and a half year mark, there's the abomination of desolation. And that's when the Jewish people realize that they've been duped and that Jesus is their Messiah. Correct. At that point, does the Bible say that two-thirds of the Jewish yes. people will die? Yes. Yep. Will they die in belief or unbelief? Uh, it's talking there about unbelief. 
Okay. Yeah. Because they've taken the mark. Well, yeah. Anybody who doesn't believe Jew or Gentile doesn't matter takes the mark. You you only have one option under the Antichrist regime. So at the midpoint, as you see on the screen here, you're exactly right. That's when he turns his uh, focus against the Jews. You know, you'll often see, as my chart shows, three and a half years of protection followed by three and a half years of persecution. That's talking about relation to Israel. The first three and a half years, we'll see the seal judgments, and some people even say the trumpet judgments. I'm inclined to put the trumpet judgments in the second half, but we don't really know for 100% sure. Let me see if I can bring that up. Here's my uh, outline of the book of Revelation. So you'll notice I put the trumpet judgments at the second half. And everybody agrees the bold judgments happen at the very end, like the last two or three days. The whole, all the bold judgments relate to the pre preparation for the campaign of Armageddon, that final battle. But in any event, even if you just put the seals in the first half like I do, you've got you know, millions and billions of people getting killed, you know, one-third, then one-quarter. You've got all kinds of the wrath of God judgments being poured out. So it's not by any means going to be this you know, cakewalk during the first three and a half years. Uh, but what we do see is that for Israel, the Antichrist is sort of their hero at first. And it's not until he breaks the treaty at the, at the midpoint, demands that everyone worship him, and then, as Revelation describes, turns his wrath, the satanic wrath, same word, orge, is the Greek word wrath, but it's obviously not the, wrath of just, the just wrath of God, it's the evil wrath of Satan, on the nation of Israel. And he begins to hunt them down and persecute them and kill them. And at that point, everyone on earth, not just Jews, will have, an op have one choice. You either take the mark or it's curtains. Right? And, uh, of course, we know that no believer will take the mark. You don't get to heaven because you didn't take the mark. You get to heaven because you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But the Bible tells us that... Uh, no, no believer will take the mark. So, so uh, you bring up another good point, and I don't know if this was, you know, in the forefront of your mind, but I do like to point out that speaking prophetically and looking at God's plan of the ages, I often talk about how, you know, we'll we will. In fact, I've even got it on the screen here: the Antichrist unveiled by the signing of the peace treaty. That means that. We, those of us who at that time are in heaven watching this unfold, perhaps, if God allows it, or as we read our Bible and we understand it, that's when we'll know who he is. It'll be clear. But he won't be unveiled and identified as the Antichrist to those on earth until the midpoint. And, uh, and that's when he really ratchets it up. So if, I, if I'm a Jew in Israel and I see the abomination and I'm like, this is wrong, this is not God, is that salvation for me? Well, it has to be explicit faith in Jesus. And the gospel of the kingdom will be being, uh, the eternal gospel being pre presented during that seven-year period. That's what the 144,000 Jewish witnesses are doing. You know, that's why they're carved out from the very beginning to go spread the gospel. Um, and, but so you have to have explicit faith in Christ but yeah, I mean, that's what Jesus is saying in the Olivet Discourse. He's saying, when you see that, head for the hills. The only alternative would be, you know, head down to your local CVS pharmacy and get the mark. <laughs> but he says, no, don't do that. Go head, head for the hills and, uh, and, and, you know, 
presume implicit within that is that these are believers, you know. Uh, and, and there will be a contingent, a huge contingent of believers in their mortal bodies who physically aren't killed and are alive at the second coming, which you see on the far right there, that black down arrow, uh, when Christ comes. The Jewish believers will be supernaturally regathered into the land as a nation. The Gentile believers are the ones to whom he's going to say, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. And then they enter the kingdom and then they pop, repopulate the earth. Uh, and as I think I mentioned a couple of sessions ago here, um, my uh, dad kind of did some speculating. He's an accountant by trade or by education, by degree, and but he's kind of a numbers guy, but he has spent his career in, in uh, purchasing. But uh, he kind of did some calculation based on the population of the earth today and then based on how many people are going to be left behind, which is purely speculative. In fact, I'd be curious, just because I like to ask this a lot through the years, how, how many people do you think will be caught up in the rapture if it were to happen today? Just I know it's a total dead reckoning guess. There's not right or wrong answer. But what do you think? Any guesses? 3%. Okay. A third. Wow, okay. What do you think, Gary? I don't. <laughs> you don't think? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, I think theologically uh, we know that there's a remnant principle so clearly it's going to be the vast minority, which whether it's a third or less than that, it, that meets that criteria. Um, but my gut tells me as things are getting worse and worse and the apostate church and how hard it is to find a church that's teaching the word of God today, um, I, don't, I would probably be, think it's just pure speculation, closer to 3% than 33%, but probably somewhere in that in that range there. But anyway, if you take those out, then you do the math, and that leaves 7.5 billion less those who were raptured on earth. And then, uh, you know, over time, in the seven years, a lot of people are going to die. We know specifically, based on the judgments that are described, that at one point a quarter are killed, and then another later, or maybe it's a third comes first, and then a quarter, but in, it's two different events. But that doesn't even take into account all the people that die because of the poisoning of the water and all these other plagues. So, you know, you have to do some speculation and guesswork just to try to come up with a working number. But let's say by the end of the tribulation, you've got, you know, a million, you know, say, I don't know, half a million people physically alive in their bodies that, that have either taken the mark or gotten saved, one of the two. That's the sheep and the goats, right? And then the goats are cast into the lake of fire, the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Jesus talks about. And then that leaves a certain subset of that left to populate the kingdom. So all I'm trying to say is by the time the kingdom starts, you've got a very small number of people in their physical bodies on the earth. Now, we'll be in the kingdom ruling and reigning and serving, but we'll be in our glorified bodies, and we won't be married or given in marriage, as Jesus said. Um, but uh, over the next thousand years, once the kingdom starts, 
if you make some you know speculation and some starting points my dad figured out he, he was guessing there by the end of the thousand years there could be 20 billion people on the earth which is very easy to see you know uh, you go back even just a thousand years from today and see the rate of growth I don't have that number at my fingertips but it was extremely far less than 7.5 billion that we see today and, and especially under the perfect idyllic conditions of the kingdom when there's no injustice, there's no accidental deaths, there's no diseases, because Jesus is ruling with a rod of iron, you can see how the population will just explode. So, so yeah, so does that kind of, did I touch on what you were kind of touching on? Yeah, I was just, you know, if two-thirds of the Jews are going to die before the end of the tribulation, yeah. I was hoping that they would go to heaven, but, yeah. um, and I didn't know the time, like, okay, we've been scammed, this guy is not God, I do believe, and then you say, if they say Jesus is the Messiah, even if they're in that two-third yeah. um, measurement, they will be in... Well, I need to go back, let me backtrack a little bit on that, I just talked about this passage yesterday. And I, but I'm drawing a blank. I can't remember if it's in Ezekiel or Zechariah. Does anybody know by any chance where it is, where it talks about two-thirds versus one-third? I'd have to go back and look at the context, but um, I, I can't say for sure, but I thought it was in the context of, you know, in judgment versus the okay. third that believe. But I, I could be wrong. It may just be talking about death in general, and maybe there's believers included in that, but... So, but everybody understands that as we think about this end times, you know, the Antichrist is going to be start out being a hero, which is why they put him in charge of the world. Oh, you solved the battle, of, in my view, he, he, the battle of Gog and Magog takes place in that uh, preparation period after the rapture, before the official start of the tribulation, and you know, he's viewed as a hero, and, um, and then uh, they put him in charge, and then, then he, he makes him regret it. So, yeah. So, JV, he might not know the answer to this. So, we in in our country, we've seen Christianity start to uh, yeah, start to people are adding, you know, people are following their own beliefs and that kind of thing. You know, I have this middle picture of Israel where every Jew is in a synagogue. You know, they, they know the Old Testament. We have some friends that live in Israel, and they certainly know the Old Testament. But are they seeing a falling away like we are from their religion? That's a good question. Is, are, are, is the Jewish, are the Jewish people today seeing a falling away from their religion? Yeah, I would say that, you know, in general, there's, the depravity of man is getting worse, and it's getting harder and harder to keep people... Uh, following the traditions of your fathers. Uh, but I would say probably by its nature, the Jewish religion is a little more likely to hang on to people. Uh, and so, in other words, the rate of departure might not be as much for them as others just because they're, they're such a devout people to begin with in their heritage. Um, but yeah, I think it's global. I think this is, this is a global turning away. And we know that, according to Daniel, the Antichrist is going to establish a one-world religion. We see this also in Re Revelation in 17. And, uh, and in order to do that, the, Daniel tells us he's going to deny the gods of his father. So he's not going to be a Muslim or definitely not a Jew, in my opinion, and, uh, and, or any other one religion, a Catholic, you know, who gets everybody to be Catholic, or a Muslim who gets everybody to be Muslim. He's going to be a pluralist who's able to bring all religions together under 
one uh, heading, and I talk about that in the, the the last of the 18 videos in Spirit of the Antichrist. And and it's interesting. I didn't. I can, I'm always studying this and continue to add uh, to it, but I, I didn't put it in that video. But just recently, I've come across some quotes by the Pope, the current Pope, uh, who just put out a book March 16th of this year called God and the World to Come, in which he explicitly talks about, quote, the new world order, the great reset, and the fact that all religions will come together under one. So, I mean, it's get, it's coming. These things are not just speculation. Yeah. I had a question. Going in, excuse me, going into the millennium, what is the world, the actual earth, I mean, it's going to be in such you know, destruction and, and all of this through all the tribulation, is is that part of the work of who's, you know, to, to rebuild? Yes. Yeah, so the question is, given the devastation that the physical earth will endure during the seven-year uh, seven tribulation, and also especially during the Battle of Armageddon, in which, you know, you've got bloodshed up to the horse's bridle, uh, will, will part of the job be to be healing the land and preparing things. Yes, and I think specifically, now although we don't know how long it'll be between the rapture and the start of the tribulation, we know there has to be a gap because they're not, you know, the, the, the rapture puts an end to the church age, the signing of the treaty starts the tribulation, and those are two separate events. If you've got two separate events, by definition, you have to have time between them. We just don't know how much. We do know explicitly from Daniel chapter 12 that there will be a 75-day interval between the end of the tribulation, the Battle of Armageddon, and the, start, the official commencement of the kingdom. Because Daniel talks about 1,290 days, which is 30 more than three and a half years in that last three and a half years, and then he talks about another 45 days. So you put those together, that's 75 days. And the speculation is that that 75 days is just used for the initial cleanup. But I also think there'll be some supernatural elements to it, since you've got God himself on the throne, it's it it may happen faster than than it would in conventional means so okay well we've got to stop there uh we'll take a break for those of you streaming the streaming will start at roughly 10 25 10 30 when i get up to preach in the second hour uh and uh, but for those of you here we'll start our service at uh, 10 o'clock <laughs>